If you knew you were starting a business that would generate you $1 million per year, how much would you be willing to invest today? Travis Ferris is a real estate entrepreneur, sales coach, team leader, public speaker, and community builder. He's done the work with over $500 million in total sales. Now he's welcoming you to the table. But make sure you're ready. The coffee is for closers only. The mindset's the one thing that's going to keep you going. Coffee for Closers is powered by Collab Agents. Here's your host, Travis Ferris. All right, welcome. This is your host, Travis Ferris, with Coffee for Closers, fueled by Collab Agents. Um, I've got the one and only uh, Joe Horoski here on this podcast. We'll, we'll learn a lot about Joe here in, in throughout the episode. However, I've known Joe for years. Super intriguing, amazing individual, handsome fellow. He has traveled the world. He came from special operations um, and transitioned from that world, which is a super you know demanding, high production, accountable world into the civilian world. And so we're going to kind of dive into what that looked like. What what was special operations look like? What what were you know if it's not classified, we'd love to hear about some of the things that you were doing. What you learned in that and essentially how you were able to bring those habits, lifestyles, and just the, the discipline of that and how you were able to utilize and leverage that into the, the business world. So without further ado, Joe Horoski, welcome, my friend. How are you doing? Thanks, Travis. Thanks for the great, great introduction. I think the first time we met was at White Plains Beach down there in a real estate event. That we were having, and you and I had a long and deaf conversation. We were talking about motorcycles at the time, dirt bikes. So, absolutely, because uh, so be like motorcycle, you have literally kind of almost rode your motorcycle around the world, right? About fifty percent <laughs> of it, yes. On uh, um, on my BMW R twelve hundred uh, GS, it's sitting over in Germany right now, waiting for the next ride, which will be this August. Nice. Where, where are you going to ride in, in August? It's already booked out, pre-planned trip, but it'll start in Munich, Germany, and then heading east, we'll spend most of the trip in Austria. That's awesome, three man. Three-week three trip. So excited about that. Yep. Super cool. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, to give our kind of listeners just a little background, we'll dive into the kind of the, the military world and realm and what that looks like. But in, in real estate, again, you, you were able to transition out of the, the special operations military world. And literally help build one of the top teams in the state of Hawaii. Total sales, like what are your total sales transactions? Like uh, what what is what is Joe Horoski sitting on as far as like production business that you guys have done? Yeah. You know, so how I ended up getting into real estate before I get to that question was initially everywhere I went in the military. As long as I was there two two to three years, I tried to buy a property, you know, leveraging the VA loan. So I started doing that and then I even ended up buying a, a condominium over in the Philippines. So that got me started like international properties. Then I started doing my own property management before I had a license as a independent landlord owner. Then I learned how to refi loans from VA to, to conventional and then 10, 1031 exchanges. So it took off from there. So by the time I decided to make the transition out of the special operations community into real estate, already brought build up quite a bit of experience for transactions and then I uh, worked with my former business partner she was super experienced top agent 
in the United States for certain, had a background overseas, started working with her. And then just year to year, I started watching in, in Hawaii, the, the metrics for the top 100 agents, and then working as a team, we were able to ramp up and, she, and then we started moving from for our team, like ranked number 80. The bottom line is working over the years, we got up to uh, number one in transactions for the year of 2019. Boom. As a team. So, yep. And then uh, transitioned out of that. I'm now over at eXp, which is an all virtual brokerage. And I have a team there. Awesome. You live a very flexible lifestyle. You like to travel. So, you know, being at eXp kind of helps, helps you accommodate that being a cloud-based mobile brokerage. Tell us, so uh, what branch of the military were you in? Which uh, special operations unit? Kind of what, what were you guys doing? If you're allowed to, whatever you can disclose. Yeah, sure. I talk a lot, a lot about the generalities of it. So uh, from the age of 12, I knew I wanted to be in special operations community, specifically Army Ranger regiments, and then also in special forces for, for Green Berets. So I'm a biggest believer in visualization and thinking about whatever you want to do every single day doesn't have to be meditation. For me, it really wasn't, although every once in a while I do meditate, but thinking thinking through those concepts. So from the age of 12, I did that. Signed up when I was 17, delayed entry program, told the recruiter, hey, I care less about the college money. I'm not doing this for any pay. And I really would have joined up the first four years for free and did the work as long as I had my shot to try out for Army Rangers. So I did all that airborne school, Ranger selection, made it in the Ranger Regiment. Ranger Regiment in the early 90s was extremely and still is extremely aggressive uh, strike force unit. At that time, we were focused on training to uh, take, jump in, parachute in, and take down airfields overseas. A good example of that would have been Panama in, in 1989, when that was done. Uh, prior to that, the operation in Granada. And then got out, and after four years of being enlisted, which was the best decision I ever made to join enlisted. I always tell people that. Had a wonderful time, wonderful experiences, and was in the top people in the world in, in Army Rangers. Got out, went to undergrad, finished a four-year degree in three years because I was motivated to do so. And then I went directly into a two-year graduate school program at University of Pittsburgh. Did that two-year program in a year and a half, just loading up on credit, staying focused. Having fun at the same time, but you know, focused to get out there and back into the work, work world. Near the end, I made a decision to go back into the military because there were still some things in the special operations community that I felt I left undone and I wanted to fulfill. So I went back in through officer candidate school and, and then became an infantry officer, went to 101st for a year, did Operation Anaconda with them, which was a big operation. And then after a year with 101st, then I tried out for Ranger Regiment to go back as an officer, and which is really unique about me because it rarely happens, is to serve in the same Ranger Battalion on two tours, both enlisted as in, and as an officer. So they, they did let me do that. And then, of course, with 9-11 and all the deployments and, and rotations, I was overseas for quite a majority of, of the time during all those years in special operations. And then I made the decision after that to go to try out for Green Beret Special Forces, which was it's a different type of special operation compared to Army Rangers, the Special Forces, the Green Berets, and you're working in small teams, usually 12 guys on, on a team. You're working with indigenous personnel, um, sometimes you know far behind enemy lines. 
you know, there were a lot of missions I went on with them over the years whereby we would only have maybe four or five Americans and maybe we would have 30 to, to 60 I, I, Iraqi soldiers with us. So you know, you're out there. <laughs> no, absolutely. So, uh, so you were, you made it through army ranger selection enlisted, went back through, made it through as an officer there. And then, and then you were at, Okay. And then from there you, you went through and made green braids and you were with them for a, a number of years. Yeah. About 15 years in green berets. So had a total of 20.5 years altogether. I always tell people I had the most adventurous and phenomenal career anybody could ever ask for. And, that, and that's a great positive thing to, to come out of the military and say, and I would do it all over again. Awesome, man. What, what would you say your craziest mission what was the craziest thing that you're allowed to say that you did that you witnessed or or partaked in? I have a lot, but <laughs> I have a lot. The, the most well-known one that people will be familiar with was in 1993. I was part of the Black Hawk Down battle that took place in Mogadishu, Somalia. I actually landed there on my on my 20th birthday. I was in Ranger Regiment 375. And I ended up for those mission sets, conducted a total of six missions there. But I was the, the driver for one of the Humvees and the battalion commander, Ranger battalion commander, Danny McKnight was in my vehicle for those operations. But most well-known incident because the two helicopters got shot down on the sixth mission, 18 Americans killed, uh, 50% of our task force uh, wounded. Chief Durant, which was a helicopter pilot, taken hostage for, for multiple days until he was eventually re released. So big, big event at the age of, of 20, 20 years old for someone. Yeah. Well, I mean, only because it came up in here, um, it could be validated. My, my picture and name is, is in the book Black Hawk Down in there. Gotcha. I'd say you, you, grew, up, you grew up real quick in those situations, huh? You grow up super fast in, in Ranger Regiment. Gosh, man. Well, that is a phenomenal career, Joe. Uh, I think that's why I wanted to have you on here because I, I, I've known that you're an amazing individual and I just wanted to share that more with people because it's like right there. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't re even really realize about you that I think some people should know. All right. So going through Rangers twice, Green Berets and, and doing all of that. What would you say if you were looking at it being like, this is the one thing to get you through? You kind of said one thing earlier as far as visualization to kind of achieve. But what would be the one thing like the discipline, the grit, the ability to endure suffering? What habit, discipline or what, what is the one greatest takeaway that if you were to look back at your career and say, that is the one thing I would pluck away that you were able to take into the civilian world to just crush business and life at, a, at another level? What would you say that would be? Mental resiliency. Mental resilience, like in terms of just mental hitting roadblocks, hitting blocks, getting shit upon and continuing to remain positive? Yes. And, and you know, really, I, I think the only way you can, you can build that is to put yourself, and sometimes it just happens to everybody in life by natural events, but to have yourself put are pushed into a lot of challenging situations and challenging environments. I mean, really, that's what all those assessment and selection courses were for that, that I had gone through in the past. They put you in very demanding, very challenging situations. And what the right people in those types of units with the right types of capabilities, 
and you've already been tested before before getting there. So all these little different events continuously build somebody's mental resiliency. And then when you're put into these bigger, larger challenges, like a combat operation where things are not necessarily going all in your direction and you, you have casualties and, and deaths, by this point, your mental resiliency has been built up to the, to the level you needed it, needed at. And that's not just applicable. That's applicable to everything, everything in life, whether it's a family situation and challenges people have, or also, you know, in the business world in, in real estate as well, having mental resiliency, the willingness to meet the different challenges and continue pushing on in, in the direction you need, you need to go and, and never, never giving up. And that's even part of the Ranger Creed to never give up. So I started with those foundations and principles at a very young age. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you kind of bring it up to where it's, you know, how often, like Mike Tyson said it too, everyone has a plan to get punched in the face. And it's just, it's so relevant, I think what you're talking about, because it's, you know, on these missions, you have detailed blueprint, uh, SOP, I'm sure you have it like plan one, two, three, four, five. How often did what you planned for actually occur and then again, you're able to take that in life and business to where you can plan to, you know, seven ways to Sunday. And, you know, how often do things actually end up the way that you planned? I wish on all the missions I had detailed blueprints for the inside. <laughs> that doesn't, we don't, it's not always, not always that exact uh, the type of information we have, but we have to execute what, with the operation with what we, what we got. Yeah, I always like the quote that you mentioned by Mike Tyson, and and I think about that all the time. And that's for every single thing in life, making some type of plan, having it, it's even better on paper, but at least thinking through it all the time in your head. And then, of course, briefing it, rehearsing if you have the time, and that could be rehearsing in the civilian world, in the military world with your teams, talking through it's going to be done. And getting feedback from everybody that's going to be involved in the plan. And then with all that said, knowing at the same time, everything is going to change when, when you're out there. Just just about everything. But it, by having the plan before you start, at least you got the general direction for the one-offs that are going to come at you and the, and the Murphy laws that are out there. 100%. All right. So you've had a, quite a career. You've, you've grown, learned more than I think anything or anyone could teach you individually. What took you from that? And where, where did you, you know, get out, retire? And essentially, like, what brought you into the real estate? Where was that journey from military to real estate? What did that look like for you? Yeah, so in the latter part of my career, I was super fortunate. I got asked to work for the military and U.S. embassies overseas. And I was, I was able to do that. Spent about five years of my life working for three different embassies, spent three years in Jakarta, Indonesia, in the defense attache office. I worked at the embassy in Sri Lanka for a year, and then I worked in, in and out of the embassy in the Philippines uh, for a while. During those assignments, I was I worked a lot with the, with the State Department and all the other agencies that, that work in the, in the U.S. embassies. But what it did for me is it exposed me quite a bit more so to the business world. And I knew there was always and other chapters in my life, other chapters of a book that I wanted to do, and that was working in the business world. So real estate was very appealing to me because of my previous personal experiences. What happened was 
instead of going to another embassy for work in, in Asia, I ended up moving to Hawaii. At that time, I, I started doing a lot of analytical research on the island of Oahu. So after my, my final three years military career in Hawaii, I could move into the real estate world. So I did about 18 months of analytical research on the island. And during that research, I, I came up with that if I positioned myself in the Eva Beach or Kapolei area, that would be strategically advantaged for business reasons because the state of Hawaii is building up the second city in Kapolei. And then if just focused on like a median level of transactions for consistency, not going after the luxury markets or other specialized markets, working the medium, medium level sales that you could really, really do quite well and have a consistent level of business. And that's, that's what unfolded over the years. hundred percent. Yeah. It's uh, I know that me and you both were kind of running around the West side of Oahu yeah. when it wasn't necessarily the most popular thing to do, but I'll tell you what, as I look online, I see a lot of people that talked a lot of trash on us on the West side running around the West side pretty hard today. And I'm like, so yeah, you were definitely on, on it to where, Eva, Kapolei, Makakilo, even Waianae, like these areas are just, have been booming over the last 10 years. They have to catch up. And that's where I think more intelligent people saw that opportunity is that, you know, you're talking about the median sales price of Oahu, which, yes. you know, I think is about 950 currently or something around there. Yep, that's right. At the time, single family homes on the West side were 500,000 and single family homes on the East side were a million. And you were like, at some point, these are going to, you know, kind of catch up to one another. So yeah, phenomenally done. And you guys absolutely just came in and, and crushed some business. And I think the, the again, intelligent people that were strategic on where they wanted to enter the, the business world and real estate market did really well. And then again, you kind of had the, the military background, which you really did a lot of military relocation, um, utilizing those contacts and things like that. I mean, we can kind of go I and mean, we can dive more into, into real estate stuff on on utilizing your military trainings or contacts. Or, you know, I, I definitely want to hear about like what brought you or led you to being like, I'm going to ride my motorcycle around the world. And and some of those, you know, learning lessons, adventures and journeys that that you went on. So, you know, th there's a lot we could dive into. What, what, what do you want to talk about? I'm up for anything. If you get me started on motorcycles, <laughs> I'll be here for <laughs> days. <laughs> 100%. What allowed you to get business to a certain place to where you were like, hey, I'm going to leave for what, three months, six months, like these these big chunks of time. Like how, how were you able to get your business up to a place of just like sustainability that really allowed you to kind of walk and step away from it for a second, you know, and then we'll dive into the journeys abroad. Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's called teamwork teamwork. And, and that comes from my, my military time in, in Ranger Regiment, Special Forces teams that I worked on for many years. And I feel the same about it. And it carries directly over to the, the real estate world. Everybody is different with it. And that's one of the great things about real estate is I worked in Coldwell Banker five and a half years. And I know some great agents in there. And I would have these discussions with them. And they're, they're a solo agent. And they're a solo agent to this day. That's how they like to operate. That's how they like to do business. I'm on the opposite side of the spectrum where for me to feel comfortable, I absolutely need a team. And I enjoy the, the team dynamics. You need the team to cover down, you know, for 
anytime you need to step out for personal issues or travel vacation or family emergencies, when you have the, the team in place, it makes life a lot easier. So that's how I was able to go away for periods of both my motorcycle trips were the big ones were 60, one was 64 days, one was 65 days. So that's the only way you can step out for a longer period of time. hundred percent. And uh, I think we talk, we talk a lot about that profitability, you know, as a solo agent, your profitability is fantastic. Um, you know, but expansion, delegation, leveraging, I think it was Henry Ford that said, you know, I'd rather make a dollar off a hundred men's labor than a hundred dollars off my own labor. And, and it's so true. I, I'm, I'm in the same boat. Like, um, I think I, I, I could crush business at a high level by myself, but it's, it's just the life that we've created and designed. We travel a lot, you know, we're, we're multi-markets to where you literally can't go into another market unless you have a successful, sustainable foundational team in place. So you hit it, hit it right on the head. And so, yeah, I mean, and it's just more fun, more fun that way. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. It's uh, two two great minds forms a third greater mind. I can't remember what else, what, what the exact terminology, but it is. It, it's. I think you can achieve more with a few people on a team, and we actually run smaller teams as well, just very efficient as a, as opposed to some of these like 50, 60 agent teams. Tell us a little bit about your team, real quick. You you plugged into EXP again. You're you're running a, a super mobile business life. Uh, tell us a bit, a bit about your team, and then we'll hop into some of these uh, journeys that you've had. Yeah, so when, when I started, I signed on at EXP. Shortly afterwards, I had a couple individuals I had previously known. Uh, they had worked on my team at, at Colwell Banker, but they found out now as at EXP. So they, they came to me and, and wanted to work along alongside in a similar format as what we had. And then over time, just added a couple more agents to it. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, we're excited to see kind of where, where you take this thing as you continue to grow, expand and build. I guess walk us through like the planning. What was your first motorcycle trip? Um, I know, I think you went, was it Africa that you did? Yeah. Uh, well, part of that, I did a lot of solo trips all throughout the United States on, on different motorcycles. But when I was getting ready to retire and transition out of the military, and this is some advice I would give everybody that's transitioning out. Make sure you take the time and, and set it up and do something for yourself. If, if you're retiring out, you've put at least 20 years of time in. It's it's okay to take a couple months and step out of everything. I see so many guys, they transition out of the military. The next day after they retire, some of them are in the same office working at the different bases and commands. And I you know, I, I can never understand that. Just not taking some time. And even if it's a week, two weeks, in my case, I decided to take uh, 64 days for the Africa motorcycle trip. So how I got keyed up and in, in looking at those types of overseas trips is in 2014, I tried to plan my own two week motorcycle trip. This is why I was still in the military to Vietnam. And I rounded up five friends that were interested, found a tour company over there. Uh, first requirement from the tour company after I had commitment from these other motorcycle riders was, hey, send us in your driver's license with the motorcycle validation on the on the license. Went back to these guys, said, hey, guys, you got to get me in a photocopy of your driver's license. And it was crickets. Didn't, didn't hear anything back. Asked them again. Didn't hear anything back. And I was like, 
this point they're they're not serious about it. So I got to find a, a serious entourage that is going to do this. I found an organization called Globe Riders, Hellgate Peterson. It's the most prominent BMW adventure motorcyclist in the, in the world. He's been running his own company for 20 years called Globe Riders. I, I got involved with them and they actually have a very in-depth, like 75 questionnaire in order to even get on these rides. And you got to prove and validate your, your, your experience, high experience levels. You know, there's a lot to those types of trips, everything from shipping. We all ship our own motorcycles. Uh, over to these countries so we get a container crate so you got to figure out how you're going to get your motorcycle to the the load up point right all the visas i think for africa we had around 11 visas that that were needed so you got to figure out how you're going to get get all these all the logistics around the route spare parts spare tires it's in depth very very well thought out but once you get on the trip and you, you start riding with these guys it's one of the things i found you need to surround yourself with the like-minded people like yourself. That's why my Vietnam trip uh, didn't work out. I wasn't with people that were serious, serious enough about it, but I, I found that with Globe Riders and all the individuals on that trip really had really super interesting backgrounds, life stories uh, to get where they were at, to be, to be able to position themselves to do a you know two-month ride, pull out a normal life to do that. So phenomenal experiences. Awesome, man. And then, so w- what are all the, the different countries that you've gone through? I mean, uh, or continents, I guess. W- what were your, you, you went through pretty much Africa and what were a couple of other long, long journeys that you've done so far? Yeah, for Africa, I rode, uh, they call it Cape Town to Cairo, but it's really Cape Town to Alexandria, Egypt, all the way up on the north where the ports are at to load the bikes up. So I was 9,000 plus miles I think there was 11, 11 countries we went through for that, including Sudan, which was super, super interesting. Of course, all types of stories uh, along the way during during that journey. Did the entire Himalaya mountain range, which was 6,000 miles plus. Started in uh, Chengdu, China. Headed west. Uh, spent 23 days riding through rural parts of China for the most part in the type all throughout Tibet. Got our motorcycles up to the highest elevation point that you possibly can get at Mount Everest on the, the Chinese side of the border. Stayed at a monk monastery at 13,000 plus feet up there, which, by the way, I couldn't sleep that night due to... Because the elevation? Yeah, altitude. Or the al- altitude, yeah. Yes, yeah. Did the rest of that ride, which wrapped back down Nepal, India, Bhutan, in the Thailand. Just epic experiences and I, I would do it all over again and then after that ride i did alaska six thousand miles a solo trip for me and i took a tent on that one used the tent sporadically i did enough camping and special operations so i went for the hotel option to be honest most nights <laughs> so, so you, you did uh you did like alaska to somewhere else or you did like all of alaska yeah i did i did all of alaska all the way up, there's a, a famous road, the Dalton Highway. To, the Dalton Highway. To dead, dead Horse, right? Yeah, yeah. It takes you up to Dead Horse. And then you follow the Dalton Highway. It's a famous motorcycle route because it has the largest, the longest gap between any two gas stations in the entire United States. I oh, think. and yeah. what, what? 
I think I think the gap somewhere around the distance, somewhere around 250 miles between the two gas stations. I mean, so on a motorcycle, you got to think through fuel usage and, and how, how you're going to orchestrate that. But when you continue north, you get all the way up, you enter into the Arctic Circle, which is cool barrier to break. And then you keep going all the way up north and then you get up to the point where the only people up there are operating the, the oil, oil rig, gas and oil industries. There's some hotels that cater to them. I stayed over there one night, which is a super unique experience. And then went back down the highway back in Alaska, which by the way, on that ride, it, uh, the temperature gauge on my bike got down to 33 degrees, which on a motorcycle, you don't want to be in too long. Yeah, no, absolutely. But Half my family's up on the oil like, fields. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, they they all a lot of them still work. Like a couple of my brothers still work up there. Yeah, it's interesting to see. It's once in a life experience, right? For sure, man. I guess two questions out of that is, what do you think? And it might have been the the, the statement you already made to where you got to surround yourself with like minded people that can kind of help you get to where you want to go. What would you say is the biggest learning lesson from traveling the world, riding motorcycles? What was like the biggest lesson or takeaway that you have from that experience? Basically, just if you were to look at it all as a snapshot, like that is the one thing that I, I took away from planning. Because again, I've done some like events with certain organizations where I had to be like super detailed on the packing list. Like, and if you're at it, like there's no, there's no being wrong on the packing list and orchestrating the travel and all that stuff. I think you said it too, like life short, you just sacrificed and, and gave 20 years of your life to this other company or organization, take time for yourself, surround yourself with, with like-minded people. Like what, what would be a, a huge just learning lesson like that you just live by from planning all this? I think looking holistically at it and motorcycle riding for me and, and how it could translate to help other people, you have to find what you're passionate about in life, whatever that is. And I've seen it for you know, and I've transitioned even myself throughout life somewhat. First, that started off with special operations. I was super passionate about it. You heard me in the beginning say I would have spent the first four years for no pay working in Ranger Regiment. I, I honestly mean that I would have. That's passion. The motorcycle passion, I started when I was six years old. And I've always been riding motorcycles since age of six, a Honda 50cc mini bike. And that, that passion has continued throughout my entire entire life to this day, and I still got future trips uh, to go on. So I think the important piece is, is people find something something in their life that they can become passionate about. And then it lets a, lot, lets a lot of other pieces in your life fall into place, right? And then you can always escape mentally, at least. Even if you can't do that activity at the time, you can be planning for your next endeavor in whatever your passion is and that helps i think that helps a lot no for sure um no that's great that's that's perfect exactly i think what we're looking for uh out of all of your travel again military or the motorcycle journey what is like the one most memorable just most beautiful thing that just sticks with you that if you were to say like hey there if there's one thing that you got to see before you die this would be it yeah, I, I just had I had so many unique and ex super interesting experiences. Um, Mount Everest sticks out in my mind. 
even also the journey to Mount Everest in those mountain ranges throughout throughout Tibet, uh, Bhutan, the pristineness of Bhutan, the people, uh, the living situations in Bhutan. That was a very very different uh, experience because the number of travelers to Bhutan had been limited for so many years. I think at one point in time, Bhutan it only allowed three thousand or five thousand. Visas to foreigners per year that's opened up now And that's that's part of the reason it's still so pristine, you know, I this really really wonderful experiences and uh, Even in Sudan, you know, I Really unique events for sure because I think one of the one of the most six in my I mean obviously Everest and all those sound just unbelievable I still remember even in Hawaii. We went to uh, Maui and we went and did Haleakala Sunrise. Oh yeah, I haven't done that. And it and it was like it was it was one of the prettiest things that we've ever witnessed, uh, Nisa and I. To where you're, I can't remember the elevation, but you are far above the clouds. You go get up there before sunlight, and you're literally like in the kingdom of heaven and watching the sunrise. It was just like mind blowing. Um, and then that night, we actually drove to Road to Hana. And we actually went all the way around the island and we left really late. So we're actually driving on the cliffside uh, highway. That's like a little one lane cliff road. And we're driving on that at night, which you would think would be scarier, but it actually was better. I got to ask you, why did you leave late at night? That's something you leave early. So we left, everyone said to leave early in the morning and we were like, I don't want to. So we left at noon. So we got to wrote to the, we got to Hana probably, six probably 6 p.m and again it's just kind of like creating i don't always go with the flow i don't always you know again i I, we we go snowboarding on the weekdays we don't go on the weekends like we kind of go against the flow if it if it if we think it will serve us and so we get to hana like 6 p.m kind of at dusk and we're like i don't want to drive back the same way i just didn't want to drive back let's drive all the way around and the cliff road at night was actually safer. I actually felt more comfortable because I could see headlights coming miles, miles away. So if I saw headlights coming, I would find a nice nook and wait for the car to pass and then continue on. But we ended up on like the backside of Maui where there's no civilization for like 50 miles. We just stopped because I like we we could see the stars and how bright they were. And we literally got out and laid on the on the car for a while and we're literally looking at the milky way it was like the most beautiful and so it was like the Haleakala sunrise that morning and then that night we're seeing like the milky way and it was just like so which one was better of the two ah they're just di- they were different they were like just equally but that's it, it you know everyone i think has their own suggestion of see this you know see this which again are just going to be some of god's god's beauty wrapped up for you. So, all right. I, we want to hear now uh, as we kind of wrap this up. So where are you living now? Like uh, <laughs> life by design, you're running a mobile business. What does life look like for you now? And, and where are you headed? Yeah. So I started a new endeavor about 14 months ago, jumped in literally two feet first and bought a 40 foot sailboat, Catalina 400, considered a neophyte sailor, right? Brand new to the sailing world. No, but I've knocked out some courses, three different American Sailing Association courses. And then I hired a phenomenal woman instructor, probably in her low 60s, with a tremendous amount of sailing experience. And she didn't live 
at a dock on a boat. She literally spent the last 10 years of her life at sea teaching people, new boat owners and couples, how to sail around the world. So I hired one of the best instructors I could find for it. I've done quite a number of one-on-one lessons with her. Ultimately, my goal is to be able to learn to sail the boat uh, single-handedly. Well, th- that's not what I would prefer to do, but if I can do it single-handedly, then it means I can take off at any point in time. So yeah, running the mobile business, uh, spending some time sailing, incorporated my motorcycle riding into the real estate work. Again, my passion was able to figure out a way, bring it into the work. So I ride all over the island, do most of my real estate work on my motorcycle for the for the most part, unless I have clients and of course I, I use my car. Still in the real estate investing. I have a couple properties here on the island that are rental properties and rented out to people currently. So I've been purposely keeping myself a little bit more mobile and, and freed up right now, but I am I am actually in the market to buy another rental property here. So I'm all geared up for that. I'm just patiently waiting for the right investment opportunity. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome, man. Well, I, I could sit here and talk to you all day because like I said, uh, all you listeners out there, Joe's an awesome, amazing individual if you haven't learned that by now. Joe, are you hiring? Where can people find you? I'm always willing. Yes, always willing to work with people that want to you know, transition or start a new career, work, work in real estate. Uh, we do a lot of OJT on the job training. One of the biggest believers in that, you know, this is a great work field where you can accomplish whatever you want to accomplish. You just have to be self-motivated. hundred percent. Yeah. Sky's the limit. Real estate is fantastic. It works as hard as you do. You know, I always tell people if you want to build up a $5 million a year business, it's there to do. You just have to do it and do the work. Um, and if you want to sell six figures or 100K a year, you can do that. So it is, it's an awesome field, very dynamic. You can build plug in and build what you want. And it's hard work. It's simple, but it's not easy. That's what we always kind of talk about now. So awesome, Joe. Where can people find you? Social media, online? Where, where do you want to send people to if they want to look into where to join you? Yeah, online, my, my email is joe.haroski at exprealty.com. You can also contact me with my phone number, 808-462-7236. And then Travis, I'd really like to thank you for allowing me to talk on this podcast today. And I, I love working with, with you and the CoLab organization. Uh, you really built something that's really working out well and helping a, a ton of people. So thank you for that. Awesome, man. And thank you for popping on. This is exactly, I knew this was going to flow into some cool, cool stuff. So that's why I wanted to have you on, bro. Definitely appreciate it. Great time with you. Um, Again, thanks for tuning in. Coffee is for closers powered by Colab Agents. So we'll see you guys on the next one. Aloha. Aloha. Enjoyed this episode of Coffee for Closers? Subscribe to the show anywhere you find podcasts and follow Collab Agents on social at Collab Agents.